Can I just ask you, what does the ideal life look like to you? What does it look like to you? For, for some of us, maybe it's just, you're just so tired of like living in next to poverty. Wealth, that's the ideal life. Because that's going to lift that strain of debt or whatever it is and that, that stress at the end of every month. Maybe it's a home, a house that you really enjoy. Maybe it's a large house that you really enjoy. Maybe you're just tired of cramped quarters. Maybe it's the, the, the type of, a type of ideal relationships or ideal job. People in your life, uh, co-workers that you can actually get along with, right? That's like your ideal. That's the life that you would really like to live. Or maybe it's a certain number of friends or, or type of friends. I'm not saying that these are necessarily wrong, but I think when we're thinking about the ideal life, that is the abundant life, you already know where I'm going with this, John 10, right? I would say there's nothing wrong with desiring some of these things, but some of them may, and some of them may be characterized by heaven itself, but we don't live in an ideal world, we live in a real world, and these things usually, usually don't happen. How do we live with that? It is so easy for us to become infatuated with the stuff of Hollywood and Amazon and all that the world has to offer, and it tantalizes us. It gets us daydreaming. I call it windows shopping. You know, when you're on windows and you're shopping, right? Windows shopping, and you're just kind of daydreaming of what life could be. And I believe that God wants to call you back. God wants to give you a proper perspective of abundant life in this real world. We live in a fallen world. And for some of us, I, I guess our ideal life is beyond that. I get that, but that's called heaven. What does it look like here on earth? Now, this sermon series is entitled The Abundant Life. We're going through the first half of John. It's actually taken from John 10, verse 10, which is what our focus is going to be this evening. And so instead of calling the sermon The Abundant Life, I've called it The Excessive Life. Now, that might not sit too well with you because you think of excessive as something different, but that's actually what this word means that we're going to look at. But God is inviting us into a life, not this ideal dream world life, but here in this fallen world, a life that is filled with abundance and even excess. And so we're going to need to look at that because this is what we're called to. And I believe that for every single one of us, regardless of what your ideal is, the abundant life, Jesus promises it's attainable in this life. What does that look like? How do we live it? Jesus tells us, I believe. And, and as I read through this, you may not see it, but I'm going to tell you that the answer to that question, what is it and how do we live it, especially how do we live it, is like right there, so clear. But in first reading, you may not notice it. So we need to dig into this. Are you there with me already? John chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice, that is the shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. 
whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. I want you to underline that. He's going to find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have the abundant life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks the flock, and sc- then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay my life down for the life of the sheep. Or I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews, you remember who the Jews are, as John uses that phrase, were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed. That is, he has a demon, or he's demonized. And raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man demonized. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Can I ask you, who? look at verse 6. Who is they? Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand. I think for us to understand the context here, we need to realize again, this, ra- this last portion, which is the beginning of John 10, wraps up Jesus' time in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now that feast started in verse t- chapter 7, verse 1, and it goes all the way to the verse that I concluded with, John 10, 21. He is in Jerusalem six months prior to his death on Passover day. The audience, when we dropped off last week, In chapter 9, his audience was the blind man that he healed. And the blind man believed in Jesus, and then he fell down and worshipped him. Then it says that there were some Pharisees with him. I believe that would be verse 39. I believe that John is making a separation here. Verse 39 actually begins another section in which Jesus is not necessarily with the blind man he healed, but he is now with a group. It doesn't say that, but when Jesus is talking to the blind man, he's alone. And now suddenly there's Pharisees with him. So I'm just going to suggest that there are Jews with him. Actually, when Jesus has done this section, it says that these words, the Jews, were again divided. Again, the Jews is a phrase that Jesus uses to not just refer to any group of Jews. The Jews, very specifically, are those who were opposing Jesus. They persecuted him. They were super ticked off that he kept healing on the Sabbath. To them, he was a lawbreaker, and no lawbreakers, no sinners, heal the blind. But they're caught in chapter 9. How does this man see? So they began to lean towards the idea that maybe this guy wasn't blind at all. Well, we went through that last week. Jesus has done a miracle. They even refer to it in verse 21. And he is speaking to the Jews. These are his antagonists, and he's speaking to them. Now, if we were to go back to chapter 9, part of that group of the Jews would be the Pharisees, because most of the Pharisees, not all of them, we know that Nicodemus and we know that Joseph of Arimathea became followers of Jesus somewhere in their ministry, but kept it quiet because they feared who? The Jews. The Jews were a wide range of people in, in Israel that opposed Jesus. 
And so here Jesus is speaking to them. And in chapter 9, it says that this group specifically comprised of Pharisees. When the blind man was taken before them, healed on the Sabbath, they began to question him. And they were divided. This is the first time that the Jews were actually divided. Six months prior to Jesus' death. Now they're divided. They were never divided before. They were always against him. Now six months prior to Jesus' death, they're divided. What is going on here? Now Jesus speaks to them again. It's as if he's driving this wedge of truth between them, dividing them even more. Because church, Jesus did not come to bring peace. What did he come to bring? A sword. He polarizes groups of people. Now initially, the crowds were divided. The people of Jerusalem were divided. And the, and the Jews, that group that opposed Jesus, was not but now in chapter 9 they are, now in chapter 10 they are. If you were to look over to chapter 11, verse 45, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and we're going to get there. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That is, raised Lazarus from the dead. So this is, where, this is where Jesus is going. He is purposefully speaking truth that divides. It polarizes. You begin to take a stand. And that's what some of these Jews were doing. And eventually, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, they believe in Jesus. Well, it doesn't go super well as a result of this polarization, it actually culminates in Jesus' crucifixion. But regardless, Jesus came to lay his life down. He came to seek and to save what's lost. And these Jews were lost. And so he is bringing truth home to them. <clears throat> this message polarizes them even more. Jesus says some rather audacious statements of truth in this chapter. And it just pushes them up against the wall and basically says, so what are you going to do about this truth? What are you going to do about these claims? Jesus says he lays his life down and he takes it up again. What? What's that supposed to mean? Well, they all found out six months later, right? I want us to look at this first portion, this first portion being verses 1 through 6. Jesus is sharing, it's probably not proper to call it a parable, maybe an extended metaphor, but it's not really a story. So we don't want to call it an allegory. But we'll just say it's an extended metaphor. That is, we come across many characters or metaphors that we need to understand because this sets up our ability to understand the rest of what Jesus is saying. So he starts off here, and he says that people apparently have tried to come into the sheep pen, but not through the gate. Jesus is the gate, by the way. People try to come in a different way. And in coming in a different way, he calls them thieves and robbers. And when I first looked at that many years ago, I'm thinking thieves and robbers, and I just never applied myself to it. A thief is a robber. A robber is a thief. What's the big deal? Technically, in the Greek, a, a thief, by the way, is klepto. We get kleptomaniac from it. But robber is something a little different. A robber would be like a highwayman. He's more violent. He's given to the violence. I can see a gun in his hand. Okay, maybe not this. Did they have guns back? Anyway, you get the idea. They're violent. Okay, knives. Lots of knives. Lots of swords. That's the robber. This word is used with reference to Barabbas during Passover. Barabbas was released and Jesus was not. The two thieves that hung on the cross next to Jesus, they were considered robbers. Violence was a part of what they accomplished. Barabbas is even called an insurrectionist in one of the Gospels. It's as, robbers is also the term used in the parable of the Good Samaritan referring to those people that met the Jew on his way away from Jerusalem and they attacked him. They stole everything he had, but they beat him. That's the robber. These people who steal, and some of them even with intentions to bring serious harm, they're the ones that Jesus is talking about here. See, they're the false teachers. They're the false teachers that have 
ill or evil intentions, harming people, bringing, you know, money, sapping them from money. We see them online. We see them on TV. We, 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 we even, they even pastor some churches. But the truth is their intentions are evil. They're more than just false teachers. They're more than just deluded and pointing away from Jesus. They have evil intentions. Then we come across the shepherd. Obviously, Jesus is the shepherd. He's the shepherd who owns the sheep. The sheep would be people like you and me. They're the ones who listen to and can recognize the shepherd's voice. And they're the ones who follow him. They don't just recognize and know his voice. They follow him. So they listen to the shepherd and they follow the shepherd. And the shepherd knows them. If you're a believer in Jesus tonight, that means you're listening to him, not just in the past. You listen and continue to listen. That's the power of the present tense in Greek. You listen and continue to listen. You follow and continue to follow. That characterizes the sheep. If that's you tonight, Jesus knows your name. He doesn't just know about you. He knows you intimately. That's just when he knows your name and he can call you by name. That's, a, that's like a, a term of endearment or a way of uh, expressing endearment that Jesus as the shepherd has for his sheep. He exercises providence. He works in all of these situations. Even when things look horrible, he steps in as our good shepherd to protect and to make thing, make sure that things work together for your good. That's the nature of the good shepherd. The stranger, now the stranger doesn't necessarily have evil intentions that we're aware of, but he just comes in and he's a false teacher. He's peddling false theology, and if anything that can be attributed to him, he just wants people to follow him. We find someone like this in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, the, here is... Paul, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders on his third missionary journey. He's already spent three and a half years in Ephesus. And on his way to Jerusalem, he meets up with them in Miletus. And as they calls the elders to Miletus, 30 miles away from Ephesus, he doesn't want to go into Ephesus because last time he was there, there was a riot, as you recall. And so he brings them, and he's very concerned for them. He actually says this in verse Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Verse 29, I know, listen to this. I know that after I leave, savage wolves, now whether that's the thief and robber or that's the stranger, they're both pretty much the same, just different intentions. Regardless, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even, listen to this, even from your own number, that is literally an out from you yourselves is what the Greek literally means. That means people who are actually elders in your local churches. That's where some of these savage wolves will come from. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Do you hear their evil intention there? That's their purpose is, come follow me. Can I just, this is just something that came to my mind. Do you realize that when people knowingly tell a falsehood and they slander someone or they gossip about them many times, that, and, and this is perverted. It's just the way we think, people. You and me both. All of us, when we gossip about something, it has a strange, perverted way of bonding to people when they gossip about somebody else. Isn't that horrible? It does. There is something we just want people to pity us. We want people to follow us. When we go through a hard time, we have no problem throwing somebody under the bus because people will now pity us and take compassion, compassion on our distresses. They'll side with you. We want people following after us too. But these people, they just want to draw people, even disciples, following after them. That's how intense they are. These are the strangers. Now, 
we need to realize Jesus tells us that his sheep don't listen to the strangers. That is, and we, I, I need to emphasize this, they, they don't listen and then continue to listen. They certainly don't follow. As a matter of fact, it says, my sheep will never follow the stranger. Now, I need to unpack this word never because it does not necessarily mean what most of us think it means. We're going to need to do that next week when we get into this idea of I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. But it says here in verse 5, but they will never follow a stranger. That is, though they may listen, they're going to recognize that's, that's not my Savior's voice. In other words... That's not the truth that I heard. I heard Jesus teach on this point. I heard him. I read the gospel somewhere and it says this. And he's trying to tell me something different. I recognize that that is not what Jesus says. I recognize that that is not the voice of God. That is not truth. That's a lie. And my sheep will not follow him. Now please understand. And I'm not going to unwrap this today. He does not mean that if you're his sheep, you will never in the future listen to and follow a stranger. That's not what he means by the word never. Again, I'm going to unpack that next week. But it means this word never is conditional. That they will never listen to and continue to listen and never follow and continue to follow. Church, if you were to follow a stranger, someone leading a cult, someone that is teaching these wackadoo theology issues and leading you away and so much of it is found by the way in the 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 prosperity gospel that is all about me and what I want rather I mean the gospel is not about me the gospel is about the grace of God who rescued me as a sinner as a matter of fact I could not even respond to the gospel if it weren't for the grace of God drawing me to Jesus and so we, we need to realize that the gospel is not about me. Jesus came to rescue me, yes. But it, the gospel, the good news, is about Jesus. And when we start replacing that with a self-serving gospel, that is no gospel at all. I'm going to follow Jesus because of all the good things he can give me. Church, that is about you. It is not about Jesus. And so consequently, so we, we can listen to this but it, when we, if we were to, as a sheep, if we were to start following cultic teachings that lead us away from who Jesus truly is and distorting the truth, if we're following that, guess who we are not following? We are not following Jesus. Because you can't serve two masters. So all I'm saying, if, if you're going to follow a stranger, because I believe a sheep can, that means you are no longer following Jesus. So church, I just want to so strongly emphasize here, be aware of what is indoctrinating you. Be aware of what you're listening to, hearing, seeing, written down on page, I mean reading, with regard to truth. Make sure it lines up with Scripture. And if you're, if you're kind of just browsing through the internet and finding, you know, just looking here and there, be careful. So much is out there on the internet that is just... It has nothing to do with truth. So I, I, I want to caution you in that. If you find something like that, d d don't listen to it. Just don't listen to it. You know, the sheep hear their Savior's voice, and they can recognize it. I want you to just, in your mind, think, is there someone in your life, when you hear their voice, you immediately know who it is? My, for, my, for me, my dad has a very distinct voice. How many of you have ever met my dad? I mean, he passed away a few years ago, but he has a very distinct voice, very loud voice too, my goodness. He can be a church of 500 people and you can hear him singing. He was a choir director. I mean, music was, he was so much about music, but he just had this strong, rich baritone voice. And when he spoke, it was so loud. I could be in a crowded mall and my dad would be talking. I could hear him. And he's on the other side of this huge area. I could hear my dad. And I could recognize his voice. 
My dad would actually whistle for us kids because we'd go off playing and it was dinner time. He would give a Bob White whistle. And I'm not going to try and imitate it, but there's a certain inflection in it. And he, he wouldn't do this. That's the only way I can do it. But he would just use his tongue and it would be so loud. We could hear him half a mile to a mile away. It was that loud. And I could wreck it. Yep, that's my dad. Sorry, guys. I got to go. Oh, come on, Mike. No, see, I knew that if I did not respond to that, I knew what would happen to me. The, 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 the gracious punishment was from my mom, Mike, no dessert. I won't get into the other you know, harsher discipline my dad would give. But I knew my dad's voice. Some people say that I have a distinctive voice. When I'm on the phone, they oh, hey, Mike. I didn't recognize. This is before caller ID, by the way. And, they, okay, they, yeah, Mike, you just have this distinctive voice. I wasn't sure if that was good or bad. But anyway, it is what it is. We recognize Jesus' voice. We recognize truth because that truth has been imparted to your life. In, in John 8, we, realize, we, we saw that when you know the truth, what does the truth do to you, church? It what? It sets you free, okay? Regardless of what Hollywood says, we came across another expression um, it's just about knowing some sort of truth. It has nothing to do with the Bible. Yep, you'll know the truth and the truth will say, that is not what he means. That just so irritates me. Hollywood, ugh. Anyway, I divert from the truth here. The truth, we recognize it because it's changed us, changed us, church. It's changed us. That truth, following Jesus, that changed me. And so we recognize truth when we hear it. We recognize the shepherds, the good shepherds' voice. It is very popular in our day, and has been for over 100 years, with regard to universal salvation. That means everyone is going to heaven regardless, and that there is no hell. And that Jesus was speaking metaphorically, and that hell is something that you create here on earth. Really big in our day today. Even those who claim to be evangelical Christians, they kind of wear that as a little name tag, you know, with their name in an even bigger print, evangelical Christian. And when you start hearing their theology, you realize they're anything but. They, they embrace universal salvation. They embrace the, the, the teaching that there's no hell, and it's just some metaphor. Don't get me going on that. We recognize this, but church, when, when we start listening to this, and it sounds so, wow, yes, God's love wins. God's love wins. Yes. That's actually a title of a book, Love Wins. And it teaches this. And w when you begin to get at it, if everyone's going to heaven and there is no hell, apparently I really don't need to place faith in Jesus. Actually, if everyone's just going to heaven regardless and there's no punishment in hell at all, then I can live however I want here on earth. Where is that going to lead you? Yeah, it's going to, your life is going to be all about yourself. You're going to be consumed with looking for pleasure and looking for the things in life. After all, it doesn't matter. There's no consequences. Go, you just wait though. Because the way God created this world, you will bear those consequences not only on this earth, but in the afterlife. You, your sins will find you out. And so even though people rationalize and they think, well, you know, I don't need to believe. I don't. Faith is hard, church. It requires sacrifice. At the very heart of faith is surrender. It's not just an acknowledgement of facts. We engage the heart. And when we engage the heart, there's this surrender to God's allegiance. That's what it means to have faith in him. Because the old man, and some of you ladies have an old man too, just so you know. And some of you young people, you got an old man too. And I'm not talking about your dad. But I, you know, Mike Curtis has an old man, and it's me. It's the way I used to live. That old man died when I gave my heart to Christ, and it was expressed in my water baptism. That man went underwater and he stayed there and a new Mike Curtis came to life because God created me as a new creature. So you know what, church? That's, that happened as a result of faith. Not just because I can quote some creed. 
the Apostles' Creed. I love the Apostles' Creed. I love the Athanasian Creed. I love many of these creeds, but quoting them won't get me saved. I must engage my heart, and that requires faith. That requires a faith that surrenders. So church, faith is surrender. And if I don't have to believe in Jesus, guess what? There's no surrender. Wow. Can you imagine how people in the church would live embracing this teaching? Apparently, faith would only be good for this life, if even that. People in our day, oh, you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, that's good for you. That's your truth. Wolves in sheep's clothing. I want us to look at this second section where Jesus in verse 7 says that I am the gate for the sheep. The sheep pen then would be his kingdom. We're supposed to enter the gate, that is, enter through Jesus. This is where he begins to polarize them. See, at this point, he's kind of just laying out who these character are, characters are. And now he begins to say that he's the gate. He's also going to say he's the good shepherd. He's the gate. And you have to enter, in, enter through him in order to be saved. What does that mean? Now, if we were to just set aside our Christian jargon, I don't want to call it jargon, um, because these are biblical terms, but as, a, as, as, an, as part of his audience, what does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? We generally, or they would generally think, well, hard times. But Jesus means that you need to be saved. You need to believe in me. Remember when he said this in John 8? He said, believe that I am. If you don't believe that I am you will die in your sins. See, that's what we need to be saved from. And Jesus here is now saying, you got to go through me. If you want your sins to be forgiven, if you want this new life and its eternal life, you got to go through me. I'm the gate. You got to go through me. That's audacious. What a bold, bold statement. And, and it riles them up and they become divided. But this is part of it. Jesus says he's the gate. You got to go through him to be saved. When you go through the gate, three things happen. He says that number one, you're going to get saved. Number two, now listen, you're going to go in and come out and find pasture. I'm going to unwrap that in just a moment. You're going to go in and out and find pasture. Why would you go in and out? It's not like you're going in and out of the kingdom. That's not what he means by that. You're going to go in and out and find pasture because you're following the shepherd. Jesus, as the good shepherd, is leading in, leading out, and he's taking you throughout the pasture. Some of us, some of us enjoy the pasture just outside the gate, and that's about as far as we go, even though Jesus is taking us further. I'm not going to say any more. I, I want to talk about that later. Don't want to jump ahead of myself here. So number one, you're going to be saved. Number two, you're going to go in and out and find pasture. And number three, you're going to receive life. And you're not just going to receive life. Church, here's this promise. When you go through the gate, you'll receive life, which is eternal life. John uses life and eternal life interchangeably. Eternal life is not just heaven. There's sometimes the word eternal life means heaven, very specifically. Throughout John, it does not. It means this life. It means this power that comes into you in the person of his, the Spirit of God, and you're changed. You're dead, and now you're alive. You're born of God. And so when he talks about this life, he says, I'm going to give you life, but I'm not going to stop there. You know what else he's going to do for you? He's going to give you this. He's going to give you abundant life. Now, I need, to, I need us to see. He's, ten, he's separating with this Greek word kai, and he separates life from this abundant life. Now, here's why I think he's doing it. Life, this eternal life, this new life in Christ, this inheritance that we have, this is given to us. This is part of our salvation. But Jesus has something more for us, and he calls it abundant life. My version says life to the full. That's fine. We came across this word abundant back in chapter 6. Do you remember when they ate to their fill? They were full. They had, what, what, what was it again? I think it was beans and corn on the cob and filet mignon, something like this. Now, they had bread and they had fish, and they ate until they were full, and then there were fragments. 
And he told the disciples, go around and fill up your baskets with these fragments. And they filled up 12 baskets of the excess. Okay? So here the people were full, and there is now excess. Jesus invites us to this fullness, but he wants to bring excess. Jesus doesn't want to just take you in and out of the sheep pen. He wants to bring you out of the bring you in and out of the sheep pen and you find pasture. Look at the rolling hills. There's green grass on them hills. It's and even beyond and Jesus takes us there. Jesus takes us into this abundant life. It's not just the life that you have, the eternal life. He's now saying it's life, but it's even abundant life. He's saying, yes, I'm giving you life, but I want you to walk in the fullness of this life. And so my question is, how do we do this? God has life for us, but he wants you to embrace all of it, everything, every aspect of this abundant life. So you can have life as a Christian but you can fail to follow the shepherd as you should and just hang out right there at the gate. I'm not saying you're not a believer or not a disciple. I'm not suggesting that. I'm simply suggesting there's so much more. He wants to, he wants to lead you so you find pasture where you graze, where you're nourished, and your soul is fed. And it, it amps up the faith and it allows us to follow him even more. It encourages us. And when we're in this dry season, that faith carries us through. There's hope because we know the good shepherd. And most importantly, he knows us and even calls us by name. But he wants to take us into that good pasture. He doesn't want you to just hang out. If you're hanging out at the gate and expecting to be nourished there, you're going to remain a weak Christian for your entire life. I know people like that. I'm not going to judge them while they're not even saved. I don't know that. I don't know their heart. That's above my pay grade. God knows their heart. But if they're saved, as Paul puts it, by the skin of their teeth, they're hanging out at the gate. Do you know that the worst place to find grazing pasture is right there at the entrance of the gate? Because it's all trampled down. And my point is very simply this. He wants you to experience the fullness of this abundant life. So how do we do this? How do we experience the fullness of this life? In this next section, he talks about him being the good shepherd. And everywhere he talks about the good shepherd, he talks about him as the good shepherd laying his life down for the sheep. He even contrasts the hired hand just so that we get it with the good shepherd. The difference is that the hired hand, well, he gets paid for what he does and he doesn't own the sheep like the good shepherd does. He is in risk management. Here's what I mean by that. He assesses the danger, the risk of everything about his job. And if the risk ever outweighs the rewards he runs. Let me just say that again. If the risk ever outweighs the rewards he runs. Risk management. Church, we can live that way too. We live our life and we like that too. We can live our life in a way that's constant risk management. Oh, I want this much of God, but I don't want any more. Why? Because there's too much risk. There's too much sacrifice that's involved. So many Christians will follow Jesus only to a point. Maybe they make it to the first hill. See ya. I'm done here. Climbing that hill. Nope. Too much risk there. And, and, and we just satisfied with this little bit of inheritance that God has given us. And I'm suggesting the difference between life and the abundant life because it's separ separated by the word and. I give you life and that you may have it abundantly. Are you experiencing that abundant life? Jesus says you can because that's what he purchased for you to walk in completely. Not some of it, not just touch the hem, but all of it. This he invites us to experience. This is the abundant life, the life 
in excess, overflowing, abundant. So this hired hand, he gets paid. He's involved in risk management. And hang on to that and, I need to turn my page. And then Jesus concludes, you know why he does all of it? You know why he actually runs? Because he doesn't care for the sheep. Now, personally, I think Jesus is referring to the Pharisees here. That the wolves aren't necessarily the savage wolves that Paul talked about in Acts 20 that I read to you. Those are these wolves, because trust me, if someone with false theology or some theology they didn't like, like Jesus is teaching, hey, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They didn't like that. They didn't like Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And so they defended him and they didn't run. They ran to him. They eventually crucified him. So I don't think that, I think the hired hand are Pharisees, but the wolves, the wolves would be someone like the Roman Empire. Oh, the Pharisees catered to them. Because it was not their head they wanted rolling. They ran when, like, someone had leprosy. Who? Stay away from that. Disease? Sickness? Okay, you need to be outside the city, outside the camp where lepers are. Now, that was an Old Testament principle, but see, they didn't care for them. They did not love them. And they separated. Why? Because they're hired hands. They were involved in risk management. Too much risk, not enough reward, I run. The good shepherd, however, is the owner. See, he's invested. I'm going to come back to that. He actually loves the sheep, and you know what his investment is? It's so intense that he loves them. His investment is his own life. And so repeatedly he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, I have a question here, and when I first read it, I didn't know the answer. And so I just honestly, this past week, I just began to spend some time. And I want to share with you what I believe Jesus is saying. It says right here in verse 17, the reason, now listen to this, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. So if Jesus didn't go to the cross, the father wouldn't love him. If we didn't sin so that Jesus needed to lay his life down. Would the Father still love the Son? Did the Father not love the Son until he was crucified? Do you see what I'm asking with these questions? See, I don't love my children based on what they do, but based on who they are. They're my child. And I love them, and they love me. I want you to notice something. Jesus purposely puts this verb in the present tense. I lay my life down. for the, That is, I lay my life down. And here's the nature of the, the Greek in the present tense. I lay my life down and continue to lay my life down. It's continuous action. See, this isn't just about the cross. This is so key, church. It's so key. When you understand this, it pops out. This is what he means. This is how I begin to graze in all of this good pasture. Why? Because I'm supposed to follow the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He regularly, daily sacrifices and lays his life down for the sheep, ultimately culminating in the cross. That is the epitome. That's the ultimate example of what it means to lay your life down. Jesus lives the surrendered life doing only what the Father's will is. That's the surrendered life. Not my will, but yours be done. He's pre-prating Gethsemane. This is how Jesus lived. It was part of his character. Greater love has no man than this, that a man do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' life was characterized by laying his life down. Jesus' life was characterized That's who Jesus is. Jesus is love. The character of Jesus 
was love. It was a willingness to follow and obey the Father, even in the weakness of his humanity, to fully trust his Father. Because he was denied certain privileges, denied certain glories. And he had to rely on the Father. The Father loved his Son. Even when he was baptized, he said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had done no miracles. He had preached no sermons that we're aware of. And he most certainly had not laid his life down on the cross. So why does he say I, the Father loves me because I lay my life down? Because Jesus is now talking about his character. This is who I am. I am love that constantly lays his life down for the sheep. So if you follow the good shepherd... What do you think you're going to do? See, when you follow the good shepherd, your life will start looking just like his. You will be laying down your life. You will be sacrificing. You will be that offering on his altar regularly. By the way, not crawling off at his living sacrifices tend to do. You will be regularly laying your life down and you will be regularly loving others. You will live that surrendered, poured out life because you're following the shepherd and that's what he does that's who he is so I'm going to just encourage you this abundant life is ours when we regularly live that surrendered life the more surrendered we live the more we receive it's actually quite paradoxical those who those whose objective in life is to live like the good shepherd and lay their life down to give away rather than take will become full, will have an abundance of life as they feed on the abundance of pasture. But Satan's objective is to destroy. He does that through the thief and the robber. The thief and the robber is not Satan. They're simply his ambassadors to wreak destruction, to kill and destroy. And even Christians can become pawns in the enemy's hand by the slander that they give. They destroy the church. Let me just tell you this, church. I need to caution us. Never be partisan to anything that destroys, anything that cripples, anything that speaks against and slanders the body of Christ. He says, don't you know, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and excuse me, 16 and 17. I need to be quick here. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? You collectively are his temple. Now listen, if anyone destroys God's temple, that's his church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. I'm not suggesting that you're going to lose your salvation. I'm not suggesting that anything like this, but you will reap what you sow. Let's be so careful, guarding our tongues, guarding our actions. There's something that rises up within us when someone, a brother or sister, hurts us. We want to lash back and put them in their place. Don't do it. Don't seek to destroy the temple of God. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. See, this abundant life is not the ideal things in life that we acquire. We're not in some competition in which we compare all of our stuff the day we die. Yeah, we had a uh, we had a cook-off the other day in heaven. It's not about who ends up with the most stuff wins. Not like that at all. It's not about what do I acquire. It's not about how much I enjoy. It's not about me and what I acquire. I mean, guys, I would love to have some of those things, but that just can't be my objective in life. My goal in life is the good pasture. My goal in life, not the good pastor, the good pasture. You heard me say it right. It, it, is, it is this this excessive, abundant life. That life. For example, it's, it's not about the things we acquire. It's what the Spirit does in you, like sacrificing it does in you, so you can live that sacrificed life. The Spirit, the spiritual fruits, the fruits of the Spirit, 
for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. These are all supernatural. Don't think you can conjure them up yourselves. These are fruits of the Spirit, not the fruit of Mike Curtis or Paul or Cole or any of you. It, it's not manufactured. And I'm sure you're a part of the equation and you got to do it, but it's the Spirit working in you and through you. That only happens in the surrendered life. But that's the abundant life. It's not about how much stuff you acquire. It's not about how many vacations and where you get to go on those vacations. It is simply about living in the Spirit and letting the Spirit produce through you and looking so much like Jesus. When he appears, John says, we will look like him. As we live this abundant life, excuse me, as we live this surrendered life, God promises the abundant life, the excessive life. He promises the joy and the peace patience that you just can't manufacture yourself. The goodness and the kindness that we just don't find in our heart all the time, especially those who hurt us. See, that's the abundant life. That's the good pasture. He welcomes you. Follow the Good Shepherd Church. Amen. Can you stand with me? Father, you're just so good to us. You're so patient with us. Father, it's so easy to pursue those things about what the world calls the abundant life instead of what you call the abundant life. That's just so easy. We can get so caught up in that. Jim Elliott lived the abundant life even though he died at an early age. He lived that poured out, sacrificed life. His wife followed him and an entire people came to Christ. Father, we just want to live that poured out life, that lay my life down for others type of life. We want to follow the good shepherd. Help us, God. It, it just works against our flesh so often. So Father, tonight we're just saying, God, it, I'm on the altar again. Just help me follow you. You have so much in store for us. It is so good. It's excessive. Lead us, good shepherd, in that good pasture. In Jesus' name I pray.